back, ladies and gentlemen, the In The Know Property Podcast as we sit here in the fucking Lazy Boys. We're talking property today. Daniel Beardle joins me again. Mate, it's good to be here. Beautiful, beautiful sunny day here in uh, in the Newcastle office. Um, mate, we're another week into to 2022 and uh, another week of property information just out there rampant, buyers running scared. Chainsaw in the back. Can you hear that? Oh, great, mate. So, um, mate, today we're we're going to run through CoreLogic, obviously, to re- release some some data um, over yep. the last couple of days. <clears throat> ANZ's released some data over the last couple of days, and uh, we're hearing a lot of buyers at the moment. What they're wanting to do is they're wanting to chase yield because yeah. of the rising interest rate environment. They you know, they want to make sure they're buying property that you know was washing its own face. So they're probably the three big topics we're going to unpack mate it's exciting good to be here very good to be here so run us through the the information that core logic brought out over the last couple of days which is essentially the you know the 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 biggest decreases in price per suburb per state than per suburb sorry um so what's what's some of the interesting data all right some of the interesting data we'll start with new south wales sydney and central coast areas um since that's where we are but it's interesting so this data covers the top 20 suburbs with the highest COVID um, capital growth. And then obviously since we've had the peak of the marketplace, the the areas that have declined the fastest. So in Sydney, we've got areas such as um, the central coast, which performed very strong. The Northern beaches performed extremely well and the Shire and a little bit on the Hills district and Hawkesbury area. Now the average was 51 to 61% capital growth in change um and the increase e- increase yeah, yeah in how many years um that is during the covid period okay so say a two-year period yeah 50 to 60 percent um and then now the the areas that have dropped the most since that increase since we've had the top of the market are northern beaches which is newport uh tarran point sutherland uh kernel sutherland uh northern narrabeen Avo- avalon beach um, and Taramara in the east. Taramara in the east or Tamarama? Tamarama, sorry. <laughs> Taramama's in the north, no, my no. friend. Tamarama in the north. So, um, so that's interesting because um, a lot of that would be fueled by people that are moving for lifestyle choices. Mm. And then now since COVID's, I guess, removed the working from home, it's uh, seen a big impact. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so... Again, the the thing that's very easy to get caught up in with this data and these headlines is um, is you know peaks to troughs, right? Like how much money we've made and how much money we're now losing. But the reality of that data is you need to then look at what is the sample size, right? Like how mm. many properties have actually sold over the last couple of months that they're comparing it to, into how many can properties had sold when they you know were saying the the the, the uh, growth has happened. So. Um, it's very important to read into to data when we when we do look at it. But yeah, like you were saying, so Tamarama, not a suburb people are moving to from uh, for working from home. Obviously, that's yeah. a that's an owner occupier suburb. It uh, is a suburb that has very low volume of sales. So you know the probably one of the biggest reasons that it looks like there's been a massive price decrease is because there probably hasn't been much that's sold in Tamarama over the last couple of months. And, and I know for a fact there hasn't been much that has sold. And because there's been low sales volume, and then on top of that, we've got uh, maybe some properties that have sold at a lower price point as opposed to 
you know, your 20 and $30 million homes, mm. which a lot of those traded last year, it looks overall like the median has come down, right? Because that's what they measure that off is median price. Mm. So last year, if you had like, you know, five, six, seven, eight, $30 million sales or $20 million sales, this year we've had, you know, maybe two of those and a lot of the sales have been the sort of the million dollar range looks like the median's come off by a significant amount when the reality is it probably hasn't come off that amount because I can guarantee you right now that if one of the properties that sold two years ago or even last year was put back on the market today, it'd sell for more because there's just such a scarcity mm. to good quality homes there. Um, but, you know, places like Avalon Beach, uh, you know, Avoca again in the Central Coast, places like um, Newport, um, again, the these locations would have had a huge influx of people moving to them because you know last year the year before being at the office wasn't as important driving from newport to the sydney cbd can take what 40 to you know 40 minutes to an hour and 20 in in good military road and pitwater road traffic um and now i would say the sales volumes have dropped in those locations the uh, price points have probably, you know, changed as well. Mm. And again, it looks like there's been a, a huge decrease in prices. Um, so I think overall, yeah, the marketplace has come off. That is a given. Do I think, you know, what, what's the data saying there that, uh, that say, Avalon Beach has come off by? So Avalon Beach has come down 10.1%. Um, you miners down 6%, but um, Avalon's probably one of the top. Yeah, 10%. 10%. So 10% from, from the peak, um, you know, I would say that's probably right. We probably have come off mm. by 10%. But having a 10% decrease in price after a 50 to 60% increase, you're still net 40% are, right? Yeah, Which is exactly. a significant <clears throat> amount of growth, especially at that price point. What's the average sale price in Avalon Beach? Oh, Two and a half, three million dollars? Yeah, at least, yeah. So, you know, when you're talking 40% growth on that amount of money, we're talking about, you know, a million to a million and a half dollars of of equity uplift yeah um and you know now we're talking about a 10 percent decrease not uh, not a significant thing um so and then if we look if we look at other states you know what, what's what's it look like yeah. if we're looking at so this is an interesting one so this is this is where i wanted to bring up the data is because uh generally we, when we talk investing sydney in the new south Wales market we look to as the highest performing marketplace right or alternatively melbourne now the suburbs that had performed the best over the last 12 months were Brisbane suburbs. So Logan is up there as the high, one of the highest performing, Hawthorne, the inner city. Um, but in Logan, we've got five or six, you know, Slacks Creek, um, Springwood, Logan Central, Cheddar, uh, Cheddar Vale that have performed 60% plus, which is pretty much on parallel, if not higher than the highest performing mm. Sydney suburbs. And this is a very interesting point, right? Because <laughs> we talk about buying in more blue chip, high growth areas that have a higher affluent and the demographic who live there can sustain price growth from a growth perspective, but also a rental and a cash flow perspective. What are your thoughts on why this has occurred? Should investors be going to these secondary marketplaces um, or are we looking at short-term metrics on a, over a long-term horizon. So it's it's interesting. So the the difference between the, the suburbs that we we're mentioning mentioning in in New South Wales just then, and again that was Sydney and Central Coast suburbs, and what we're mentioning now in the outer ring of Brisbane, being in the in the Loganshire, um, the difference is the buyer demographic. So I can almost guarantee that in Sydney, eighty plus percent of those buyers would have been owner occupier buyers, mm. people moving there for emotional and lifestyle reasons. 
in the Logan area, they would not have been owner-occupier buyers. They would have been investors <clears throat> driving the marketplace, right? Like, I don't know how many investors we speak to on a daily and a weekly basis to say, I want to go invest in Sydney, uh, in Brisbane, sorry. Um, so the growth, sure, it may look like on surface level it has been stronger and numbers don't lie. Like it, on a percentage base, it has been stronger, but the growth has been driven by the wrong people. The growth has been driven by investors. Obviously, investors are buying for you know logic and investors are buying for, for financial reasons, not emotional reasons. Um, and that growth is not sustainable because if the market is driven by investor growth, and the investors are investing from outside of Brisbane. So they've probably got higher incomes. They probably look at the property and see it as affordable. Mm-hmm. And they're driving the prices up. All of a sudden, what happens is the owner-occupiers or the locals who live there start to find the property unaffordable. And owner-occupiers are the people who drive consistent price growth. If, an owner, if, if a marketplace is growing because of owner-occupier demand... That is, a, that is growth that will, sure, it will fluctuate slightly, but it is growth that will stay there over the long time because owner-occupiers stabilize the marketplace, right? Because there's always consistent new owner-occupiers moving into a marketplace. With places like Logan, all of a sudden what happens in markets like this, investors last year had fear of missing out. Everyone was getting into the marketplace wanting to make 60% growth, right? Now the market's changed. Investors are the first people to stop buying because they're buying for financial reasons, right? And if mm. the marketplace is going to decrease, if I was an investor they're thinking, why should I buy? So what happens is we've seen 60% growth in Logan over the last X amount of years. Let's see what happens to Logan over the next 12 to 24 months um, with decreases. And then subsequently over the next five years when sentiment isn't as strong because mm. that's, the, that's the important thing here. It's not about what grows over the you know, two-year period. It's what grows consistently over a 20-year period. Now, Logan probably hasn't made that list any other <laughs> year, yeah. right? Tamarama would have made that list every single year. It's um it's interesting because I was in uh, Logan and Brisbane myself looking at properties to to actually give it a, a really big consideration, particularly if you're an investor who has high serviceability and bought prior to COVID. The marketplace has gone up sixty percent. You have this founded equity which you can then use to recycle, go again. And I will say, like Logan did have strong rental yields. Four to five percent. That area as a whole has quite larger land parcels, so you can, and they're very old dwellings. So you can uh, do a cosmetic or structural renovation, add dual income through a granny flat, or adding another bedroom. What's your take on on that? Where people have bought in these areas that to kind of time that growth, refinance to go again, or is that a mistake? Because like you said, in the short term, yes, it's performed well. It's very hard to time when that growth would have occurred. And then also in the long run, that asset won't be as far ahead as an asset you would have bought that has the fundamentals. Yeah, timing the market's impossible, right? Like no one knew we were going to have a, have, a, have a bull market like we've had over the last couple of years. Not even me. And I think I know everything. <laughs> um, uh, so look, the, I think the strategy overall, overall can work, right? You get into an area hypothetically it grows you refinance you buy again into another area that grows refinance buy again blah 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 how many people can actually do that very few again something we spoke about in the last episode was serviceability mm. it's not possible to continue to keep buying and keep buying and keep buying right so if you've got a finite amount of serviceability which means you've got a finite amount of properties that you can own um i'd be super selective with what assets i'd be putting into that portfolio which is going to make up that finite amount of properties um, so look, 
I think for certain people, great. I think for other people, not so great. Mm. Um, for myself personally and for the clients that we look after, definitely wouldn't be something that I'd be advising on because you know, if I could only buy four properties, I'd want to know that I bought four properties and I'd never have to sell those properties at all because they're going to consistently perform over the long term. And if I look at Logan's data over the last 20 years, has the growth been there? Has it been consistent? Probably not. So we'd be betting on something that hasn't happened in the past. Mm. And, um, you know, again, that's in my eyes, speculation, not, uh, not investing. And obviously I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan. Everyone, uh, everyone knows I love Warren Buffett or most people know I love Warren Buffett. And, um, you know, Warren Buffett, is uh is obviously in a different segment of the marketplace he invests in equities and he invests in um in businesses but the, the philosophies remain the same right like warren buffett re- invests regardless of market conditions and he invests in the same things regardless of market conditions so you know if you look at a company like apple or you look at a company like coca-cola like these are really good companies right regardless mm. of what happens in the overall economy not going out of demand people are not going from iphones to start using huawei's <laughs> or something you know people are not going to start stop drinking coca-cola and go drink the aldi brand like it's just mm. it's, it, it's how it is and you know you, you look at the share price of, of of something and go well wow apple's come off by 40 percent. does that make apple any any less of a company no it doesn't coca-cola's come off by x percent does it make it any less of a company no it doesn't um so it's the same with property. Like, you know, if you've had 60% or 50% growth in these things and they come off by, I'd buy more. They're on sale. Go crazy, you know? Mm. And that, that, that's my take on it is like, you know, you never, you never change what you invest in. You invest in the same things. Sometimes you're going to buy into good markets. Sometimes you're going to buy into not so great markets. Um, but you keep that consistent um, theme. Mm, that's an interesting point. And I, um, I was reading this morning for the average investor well, – that, that an, an Australian who is investing in, and wants to build a portfolio, they buy between every seven to 10 years. So mm. it's interesting the reality of people actually picking these areas that do go up in value, having the serviceability to continually build, having the team and the know-how to structure and use trusts and what have you to maintain that process isn't very practical for the average buyer out there. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, the average buyer out there does not have an unlimited amount of income. They have a finite mm-hmm. amount of income, a finite amount of serviceability. And, um, and they're probably not going to go and buy 10 properties. They're probably going to buy three to five really good properties over a lifetime. Mm. So if I knew I could only have three or five really good quality properties, I'd, um, I'd want to make sure that they're the best properties I could possibly own, um, both fundamentally and then, and then also, you know, making sure that it's un- they're unlikely to have major issues. It's in a good area. We've got good tenants. Not going to cost me a lot of money, you know. When it so- does happen, it happens. It, 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 it does happen. Yeah. So, but it can happen anywhere, right? Yeah. You yeah. can't just put that down to to the location. But again, it you want to buy the best quality stuff that you can buy. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be taking dramatic risk. For sure. I agree. And I guess that this will lead me on to I guess the overarching theme and what I wanted to talk about today, which is don't chase the yield or. or don't alter your plan or the fundamentals of why we invest based on short-term metrics. Now, something I want to make clear to a lot of investors out there who haven't looked at the data and take a long-term view is that high growth properties will outperform both, uh, sorry, will outperform high cash flow properties in both capital growth and in cash flow in the long run, which a lot of people 
don't don't realize or think about is that yeah it's all good and well to buy a seven percent yielding property in um you know queens um the northern like northern queensland Mackay, for example that's not going to grow versus buying a property in a blue chip area which in the short term only has a two and a half percent yield but the property's value doubled or increased so much that that yield on that amount is such a large value um, yeah so I want to I want to pick your brains about this and, and discuss the topic about not chasing the yield. It's something I'm hearing a lot at the moment with our or buyers that are coming <coughs> to us. This change in the marketplace with interest rate rises. Um, what's your take on that? Um, and how do they supple if they are going to experience any shortfalls? What are some of the tricks they can, mm. I guess, manage? I did a podcast recently with Sam Gordon on this on this topic around you know blue chip or, or uh, blue collar I think, I think the topic was and it was essentially like cash flow or or growth and um you know the examples used that we were that we were arguing on were not reality you know yeah. like the, the the examples that we used were i think like a a eight percent growth per annum property at a two percent yield versus a eight percent yield property and a x percent growth or something um and the numbers ended up netting off the same. Yeah, but, which the reality they wouldn't. Yeah, it's 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 not the same. So, um, look, I think every single person is obviously different, right, in their situation. And doing something is better than doing nothing. Um, yeah. A lot of the time, sometimes doing nothing is better when you buy the wrong asset and it goes backwards. Um, but <laughs> you know, I think you you need to look at a property neither for high growth or high cash flow. It needs to be a balanced asset, right? It needs to be a consistent long-term performer. So if you're usually going super high cash flow, that means there is usually going to be a higher risk associated with that property, right? Because mm-hmm. you're going into an area where the yield has well and truly outweighed the growth of that asset, right? Because the only yeah. reason a property's yield goes much higher than, than the growth rate of that property is because either the people in the location can't afford to buy, so they're forced to rent. It's either a location where you know there's a lot of workers that go there for short term you know things like mining mm, towns mm. for example or like Mackay. yeah or places where there's huge infrastructure being built and there's a lot of workers going there that you know causes a lot of the rental prices to increase and then obviously when those workers disperse the, the rental prices will go back down or you're in a rural town where people just you know don't buy property um so just quickly for those who don't know yield rental yield on a property is when we take the assets value or what we've purchased for, let's say it's 500,000 and that property rents for say 500, sorry, $50,000 per annum or $500 a week. Um, you take the asset, va- the, the amount of income per annum divided by the asset value is the yield. The yield, that's right. So it's, you know, a percentage. So if you had uh, a 5% yield on a property, it'd take you 20 years of, of rental yield to pay back the overall property itself if you're paying no expenses. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think most people look at it from a wrong... Because most people want instant gratification, right? They want to buy a property right now. They want it to benefit their life from day one, which is producing cash flow for them mm. because it's going to impact their day-to-day life. But when people look at cash flow, they look at it at a high level. They look at it like, okay, I'm going to get 6% yield. I've got a 4% interest rate. That means I'm going to make up 2%. What they don't take into consideration is... Okay, you've made a couple of grand that year. You got to pay tax on that money straight away. Then your hot water system shits itself. There's another couple of grand you got to pay. You know, then you've got a vacancy period for three or four weeks for some reason. You know, and then all of a sudden your projected cash flow that you're meant to have mm-hmm. on a spreadsheet is not really, you know, I, I, it's not really making a dramatical impact on your life. 
Um, whereas growth is something that you don't see in the short term. Maybe over the last couple of years you have, but growth is usually something that happens over over a period of time. You know, when you get X amount of years down the track and you've got 500,000 or a million dollars in equity sitting there, now that can make a dramatical impact on, um, you know, your overall life and lifestyle and what you're able to do. Uh, and I strongly believe that there are better asset classes if you are looking for cash flow. Like the incredible thing about real estate and the reason that I'm so growth focused and not hyper growth focused, because if you're hyper growth focused, that's when you're investing in you know, hot spots, right? Because you're trying mm. to get 20% in the short term. Like I'm growth focused where I want consistent returns. Um, but it's because you're investing such a small amount of real liquid or real capital and getting such a large asset base for that money. Like mm. if you can go put $100,000 of real money down on a $500,000 asset and borrow the other 400 from the bank, you're not getting growth on the 100, you're getting growth on the 500. So that's the powerful thing about real estate. So you're turning your $100,000 into the biggest um, you know, asset base that you can turn it into. And uh, then with that, you can use that big cash base or equity base that you have to then go find cash flow if you need to. And usually you need to find cash flow as you're getting onto the later years in your life. Um, and a lot of people talk about property being a liquid as well, right? Like it's, it's a liquid because it's tied up and you can't sell it down like you can with shares. But the reality is it's not a liquid if you've got an income because mm. equity is, is as liquid as possible. Yeah. Um, when you convert it to debt. Yeah, that's right. So um, if, you're converting, if you're converting equity and, and making it liquid and turning it into debt, um, you've got debt against an asset that's continuing to grow in value. So as long as it's growing in value by more than that equity is costing you to use, then mm. you're still in a much better net position. Um, so yeah, look, I don't think you should be going for high cash flow. I don't think you should be going for high growth. I think you should be going for a balance of both. I think you should be going for something that's performing at, you know, six to nine percent capital growth and you should be going for a yield with interest rates sitting around the levels they are now somewhere between you know three to five percent and that's a balanced asset that's an asset what's going to be in strong demand over the long term it's an asset where growth and yield are staying pretty level you know in terms of the, mm. the marketplace there um, and it's an asset where you're likely to do over long term numbers much better than trying to go for one or the other what about the argument or the topic where buying real estate for tax advantages i'm buying a property for example a lot of the properties of late were being bought at say cabulture murrayfield up in queensland house and land packages dual incomes mm. tax write-offs or a brand new house and land package very far out west yeah what's your take on buying property for tax advantages yeah well look um, I mean, to increase your yield. there are benefits to buying property, but it shouldn't be the reason. Again, it's not a strategy. It's a tax outcome, right? So, um, you know, buying brand new, the reason you're getting tax advantages is because things are depreciating, which is actually not a good thing. You don't want to be paying. You don't want to be claiming a lot of depreciation. You want to be not claiming depreciation because you want the asset itself or the house itself to be fully depreciated, ideally, when you buy it. So the majority of the value you're spending on the property is going into the land it's sitting on. I'd rather have $0 depreciation on a property and all appreciation in the land, right? So um, the issue with buying new is that if we're looking at you've got 100% of the, the, the property um, and you're spending $500,000 on that property, um, when you buy brand new, 60% of that 500000 is going into the house that's sitting on the land 
and 40% of that 500,000 is going into the land that that house sits on. Mm. Um, you want it the opposite way. You want it to be 60% or 70% or 80% of the money that you're investing is going into the land that the house is sitting on. And then 20% or 30% of the value going into the house. Because like I said, houses appreciate, houses depreciate, land appreciates. So um, yeah, you definitely want, you definitely do not want to be investing <clears throat> for um, yeah, tax benefits. You want to be investing yeah. for growth. And I have, guess that's, it comes down to what's your plan with property. Why are you getting into it? I think from what I've seen, if, if I was in my later years of a career, 55, 60, I think buying high growth or brand new that you can use that excess capital to pay off that debt faster. So you maybe have an unencumbered property faster because you don't have the years to let that property accumulate and buy multiple I think has its place. Um, yeah, but again, the reality is you're only going to get depreciation back if you've got the income to claim it against. Yeah. So, you know, if, you, if you're claiming, let's just say you claim $100,000 of depreciation that year, that $100,000 needs to go against something. So let's just say it goes against your taxable income. Yeah, so the reality is you'd have a hundred grand taxable income, depreciation, let's say 15,000. 100 grand minus 15,000 is your... Then you get 30% of that 15,000 because that's what you pay in tax, right? So, oh, wow, you made five grand. Fuck, congratulations. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's, that's, it's, it's not a huge thing, right? It, they're little, they're little sugar sweeteners that get people excited, but it's not, it's not the reason we're, we're investing. We're investing for turning the $100,000 of cash you put in as a deposit to, you know, $500,000 in seven years. Like that's mm. a 500% ROI. That's much stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ANZ's come out this uh this yeah, week and one. said that um you know we're looking at a 14 percent decrease annualized and and the way that they've come up with that number is they've said well on average the market's decreasing by about a percent a month on an annualized basis we're looking at you know just over 14 percent. i think it's 1.2 or 1.3 percent a month yeah and that's for um sydney yeah for um, sydney for sydney itself um, again, they're still projecting into the future, right? And another six, yeah, and then another six percent further for the year after. So, a total of twenty percent drop from the peak to trough um, by the end of twenty twenty three. Yeah, with rate with prices to go up by six percent twenty twenty four. I still think that's not a bad outcome, even if we're saying, even if we're we're agreeing with that happening, like forty mm. percent to sixty percent growth in two to three years and a twenty percent decrease, which means you're still up somewhere between twenty to forty percent. Massive. In two or three years. If you're smart and you refinance at the top of the market and release your equity, you're not off out by anything because you've got that money out of the property. Um, and then, you know, again it, the market will stabilize. The powers that be will step in to stimulate and, and the market will continue to do its thing over the long term. So the market's come off by about 6% in Sydney so far. So they're saying they're projecting 14 because they're saying it's come off by 6 so far. What does that look yeah. like moving into the future? <clears throat> but and I guess like the thing to bear in mind, that data is lagging as well. So the reality is I, in, depending on the marketplace in Sydney, some areas have come off 10, 15%. Some areas have come off barely any or some property types have yeah. come off very minimally. So the 14% thing is is may may not happen they're looking at an overall macro marketplace not micro individual markets but even if we go worst case scenario and say it does come off for 20 percent in two years you're still up by 40 40 percent mm. you know which is um which is not a not a bad uh, not a bad outcome the only people who will really feel this is people who you know bought at the peak, peak right yeah. and again it's 
a small number of people in comparison to the amount of people that would have bought over the last couple of years. Mm. So in every single market cycle, we have huge winners and some people who don't win as much. Um, and you know, at, in hindsight, you always say, fuck, I would have done that. I would have done this, but you never, you never actually know. Right. Yeah. I think it's a big thing. Um, so I think with the way rates are rising, if we want to focus on having a more of a balanced asset where the yield still, you know, like you said, three to potentially four, four and a half percent. Um, I think what's super important when we are looking at these properties is to think of other things such as the vacancy rate, which is very much overlooked with a lot of buyers. Um, and, and also looking what that will look like in the longer term. It's very, like you said, focus on areas where there's stimulation of renters because there's uh, work going on, you know, the, in Brisbane, for example, with the Olympics, a lot of people will be moving there for employment. You'll have rents going there, but what does that look like in the longer term mm. when you've bought into an investment dominant marketplace, not an owner occupied dominant marketplace? You know, in two years' time, the vacancy rate's no longer at one to two percent, it's at five, seven, eight, nine, ten percent. That property's vacant for a, a month to two months mm. can massively impact your. Can, your for pocket. sure. I think in Australia over the next five years, we're, we're not going to have high vacancy rates anyway, just because of the lack of building that's going on at the yeah. moment, right? So. Um, we've got no immigration almost at the moment, so I think that's going to have an even more a more significant impact on our on our vacancy. But again, analytical, you know, can get yeah. you know going into the data. <laughs> There's a lot of um, a lot of variables at play here, but I think again, it's it's going back to our overall theme of following fundamentals and and not getting caught up in uh, in all of these short term data metrics because you see like you know just these two articles that we've picked up. Core logic markets off by mm. in these areas, you know, ten percent, twenty percent. You know, ANZ said markets coming off by fourteen. It's like, well, it gives a fuck about what the market's doing right now. You know, like the reality is, you should buy a property, turn the TV off, and come back in five years' time. That's all that matters. You know, you yeah, you can't uh, you can't price things on a daily basis. It's not reality. Yeah, it's so true. Super numb, super common at the moment with all the the hype of the media for people to try and time the market hold off buying it sells my friend it sells have we got a, have we got a few questions at the end here before we uh couple of questions before we wrap it yeah let's let's rip in i've actually got a question i will i'm um one one thing i'm looking to focus on myself now is a way in, to buy property or control assets is using option contracts um obviously this is a strategy mark rolton talks about quite a lot um so for those who don't know, optioning properties similar to shares, you agree to control the rights of a property for a certain period of time. You don't own, you haven't exchanged on contracts yet, but you have the right to settle on that property on an agreed price at a later time, which gives you the time to get a DA approval or do due diligence where you can basically buy, buy a property for a million dollars. I can go get a DA approval on that property without owning it yet. Now that property is worth say 2.2, 2.3 million. So if you are worried about interest rates and a short on serviceability, you can still enter the property game being creative with contracts. Um, or if you hold property at the moment, you know, being creative and trying to get increased cash flow through renovations, adding a granny flat, spending some money on the internals, paint, carpet, um, I think is something people can do as well. For sure. For sure, options are a, a, obviously a, a uh, more sophisticated 
approach, yeah. right? It's more of a business. Like a, yeah, it's good. I think if you can do them, why not? But again, very difficult to, to yeah. actually pull an option Man, off. It's hard. I, um, I've, I've been trying for the last two years. I've been door knocking, pamphlet dropping, and it's hard to get people to agree to it. Of course, because you're essentially saying, hey, stay put for two years. <laughs> and at the end of this two years, if everything works out on my end, I'll make I'm going to buy your property <laughs> and make money on it, right? Yeah. So um, they're hard to pull off, but you know things are hard for a reason. And if yeah. you can pull them off, they're very, very rewarding. Um, mate, very good. Very good. A lot, uh, of, a lot of the same. A lot of the same, you know, with the market. Lots of, lots of uh, speculation and... You know, the reality is you think about your own life, has it changed much at all with all this speculation and data? Probably not. Um, so you just got to keep on keeping on. Exactly. I've got some, two questions for you that are quite common. Uh, how do you live off your portfolio? So there's a few different ways. Obviously, cash flow is, is a way. The issue with cash flow is every dollar that you get paid, you pay tax on. And... Um, you know, you, you can lose 30 to 50% of whatever you're getting as, from a cash flow perspective. So it's probably not the most efficient way if you can avoid it. Um, the way that I will live off my portfolio um, and the way that I fund some of my lifestyle now is through equity. So hypothetically speaking, you've got $3 million in property that's growing at 10% a year for round numbers. So you're making $300,000 a year of equity. That doesn't happen every year, obviously, but on average, you're making 300 grand, 300 grand, 300 grand. So... You know, let's hypothetically say on that $3 million portfolio, it's slightly negative and it costs you um, 2% a year to hold. So on 3 million bucks, it's costing you 60 grand a year. Comes off your taxable income, obviously. 2% is high as well. Um, So it's costing you 60 grand, but it's making you 300 in equity. So your net is 240. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's hypothetically say you've got, you know, five years of growth in the portfolio. So you've got one and a half million of, of equity. And it's cost you 300 grand to hold that portfolio. Um, so what you could do is just say, okay, well, over the next five years, I'm going to make another one and a half, and it's going to cost me another 300. So I'm going to net 1.2. So this is if you have the, uh, the, you know, obviously the income to be able to service it. Let's release a million dollars of equity. Okay, that million dollars goes into your bank account. It goes into an offset account, so you're not paying interest on it. 300 grand of that million is gonna be used to service your portfolio for the next five years. So it's not costing you any more money. Your, your portfolio is servicing your portfolio and in five years time, you plan to refinance it again. The other 700 grand you have there is play money, right? You can buy Bonkers. more, you can buy more. What, what type of play are we talking? <laughs> you can go and buy more property, you can you know, service your lifestyle or it could be you know, five years of income at 120 grand a year, 125 grand a year. Mm. Um, and then after that five years, you've got no, no 700 left. You've used the 300 to service your portfolio. You know, ideally, the, prop, the portfolio has grown now by another one and a half. You do the same thing. So you, you, your portfolio is growing faster than, than you're able to actually Spend. use the money. Yeah. Now, this only really works for people that have obviously incomes that increase or that run businesses um, that allow you to be able to do that. Um, but naturally, if you're going through life, you're going to get to a point where you've got enough net assets, if you're not using this strategy, that you can sell down assets, pay down some of the debt, either cash flow from that or use the, the cash that you get from selling down some of the assets to go put it into cash flow producing. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so basically what you're saying for people that are self-employed, own a business or have high serviceability, 
they can follow the strategy of releasing equity. Mm. That equity can service the debt and then the remaining portion you use for lifestyle expenses. Alternatively, for a PAYG or lower income person, they can sell off portion of their portfolio, pay down the debt of the other assets to have unencumbered assets and live off the cash flow. Yeah, or you don't even need to sell some down. Like if you've got a portfolio where you're like, yeah, I'm happy with this gross amount of assets yeah. and I'd be happy if I could pay this down to zero and live off it. You know, as you as you get to that stage, you stop acquiring and then all of a sudden you start recycling the income to start paying down the debt on a yearly basis over the next, say, five years. So you're going through a debt um, reducing yep. and then, you know, your cash flow is paying that down. Every, every fucking month that you're uh you know you're paying your mortgage you're getting lower repayments um so then you're, you're paying more and more and more and more and more off mm. and then over that five-year period you know you should get to a point then or whatever year period it is you should get to a point then where it's producing more cash flow than you can than you can spend um yeah so there's a, there's, a, there's a few there's a few different ways to do it awesome uh, awesome man did you want one more question or wrap mate it up? hit me up hit it up hit it up uh, alrighty, this one's a good one. I'm someone's twenty five years old. Mm-hmm. They've got two hundred grand cash. They can service about eight hundred thousand of debt. Yes. What should they focus on for their first purchase? So twenty five, eight hundred thousand of servicing. Um, what was the other thing? Two hundred equity. Two hundred equity. So it's not the first property. They're it's their si- first property. Where's the two hundred equity come from? Oh, you mean deposit? Yeah, two hundred deposit. deposit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so they're going to have a six hundred thousand dollar mortgage, and it's, I'm assuming it's going to be something that they're living in, is it, or an investment? Let's just say it's an investment. Um, what they should be focusing on is, like we were talking about, a balanced asset, right? Um, you ideally want to buy something that's in a marketplace that will perform over the long term, and ideally you never want to sell this property, right? This is going to be the foundation of the portfolio, which means. You buy it, it's going to consistently perform and it's going to be a little cash cow that you can continue to go back to and say, I need some some more equity, I need some more equity, I need some more equity. Um, So, you know, again, major capital cities, houses or apartments in boutique blocks, I wouldn't buy something that's renovated, I'd buy something that is rentable from day one but has the ability to cosmetically renovate it, update it, you know, potentially do some sort of development on it down the track. And when I say development, I don't mean 50 apartments. I mean, you know, maybe like a duplex or a hmm. splitter block or something like that. Just something that has opportunity. Um, but very plain, very simple. Like it doesn't, you know, I wouldn't be going super complex. Um, and just understand that if you're going in with 200 cash, that's great. Um, and you put a tenant in there, the rent is probably going to cover, cover an 80% mortgage on that property. Like if you're going at a 3 to 4% yield, um, and then, you know, your goal then is to work out, well, how can I now get my deposit for property number two? And that's probably going to be a combination of savings because this property is not going to be eating into your cash flow and then also that property growing in value. Mm. So, if you you know, the more aggressive you can get into the second one, then you've got two in the marketplace compounding together. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't go super complex, just super straightforward. Probably buy a house, I would say, or, or again, a, a boutique apartment. Um in a, in a really good quality location and and sit back and enjoy the ride. Sit back, huh? And then that last one, biggest mistake you see investors make? Um, trying to get rich overnight. Like that's biggest, not just investors, that's in life. Everyone wants to, you know, get super wealthy overnight, but I don't know anyone who's actually done it. So um, 
they make irrational decisions. They're searching for the answer. They're always searching for the shortcut, you know, mm. and the reality is the, the, the shortcut is to do it the, the right way. Like that's the yeah. shortest way to get there. So that's, that's the biggest mistake. Don't try and get rich overnight. Understand it takes time. If everyone could get rich overnight, there'd be a, a way to do it. And I would have done it. It doesn't happen. Um, and just, just play the long game. That's, that's the long game. Very long. <laughs> All right. No, no, that was good. Mate, thanks very much. And we'll see you again next week.